Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and we've got a big news show for you this week. There's been so much that's been happening over the last couple of weeks uh, since we had the interview with Corey Doctorow. And as promised, I've got a little bit of an update for you on that. I'll start off with an update on the whole app fairness thing and the Epic and Apple battle. Uh, also, boy, we're going to talk about some new Android spyware found posing as Telegram and Threema apps. Uh, talk about Google Chrome, a really interesting article I read uh, calling it the anti-privacy browser. Of course, you know how I feel about that, but, you know, it's always good to get uh, a third party that backs that up. And uh, it's a really good article. I'm just going to read part of that one for you. And then another article about Google that's pretty disturbing. We've talked about how Google uses what's called geofencing warrants, which the the police can approach Google and say, you know, we want to know everybody who is in this geographic locations during this time. Uh, and to the extent Google knows that, which they know quite a bit, they give away that data. Now, it's semi-anonymized or whatever, um, but it's still troubling. And now they're talking about a new type of, you know, really overbroad warrant, which I can't believe will not be challenged uh, and found unconstitutional. But currently, uh, the cops say, we want to know everybody who's searching for these terms. So we're going to talk about that. Got some interesting updates on uh, Amazon products, and I'm going to do my best not to say the A word, A-L-E-X-A, so I don't trigger all your devices. But lots, lots of updates on that having to do with privacy, some good and some really creepy. I've got a cautionary tale about a coffee maker that was infected with ransomware. I've been meaning to talk about this one for a while. I found an article, so I thought it an uh, interesting time to bring this up, and that is... Uh, you know, should you let your insurance company track your driving? This has been something that they've been touting a little device you put in your car that, you know, supposedly if you're a good driver, it lets you lower your rates. Well, it's not supposedly, that's how it works. But, uh, you know, should you do that? We'll talk about that. And then there's, there was a big to do over uh, an Apple flaw in the Apple's T2 chip, which if you don't know what that is, you're normal. <laughs> I'll explain that uh, when I get to the article. But it was covered by the news quite a bit, and it sounded pretty dire. Um, and it's bad, but it's not as bad as it sounds. Uh, so again, it's another one of those cases where I kind of want to level set and make sure you understand what the real vulnerabilities are there and how likely it is that it will affect you. And finally, we'll wrap up with our tip of the week. Actually, a few shorter tips of the week, kind of a little short list, because this is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Now I'm getting a little bit getting in a little bit late on this. I started last week, but I will try to you know give you some of these tips that um, uh, that that they are giving out uh, as, as we go through the the next few weeks. And I'll even though we've got an interview coming up next week for actually the next two weeks, I'll definitely sprinkle in some of these uh, these tips from the National Cybersecurity Awareness Month program. So real quick, thanks again to everybody who entered the the book giveaway contest. Uh, we announced the 15 winners last week. Uh, all the digital winners should have just gotten the download link through email that should be already good to go and all the signed copies went out tuesday tuesday morning so my guess is those will probably have already arrived at most of your locations by the time you hear this podcast so i hope you guys enjoy that but if you if you missed it uh and you still would like to get a copy of the book and get a deal on that tune in to the end of the show i've got a coupon code that will help you get 20 percent off but there's so much to get to so let's get to the news <laughs> All right, first up, we just had a really awesome interview with Cory Doctorow about the Epic and Apple battle over Fortnite and the App Store and Apple's 30% cut of everything sold through that store. 
Uh, and if you missed that, that's go back and check those two out for sure. And as I promised, as as we did the interview and then as I was editing and posting the interview over the next few weeks, there's already been several developments. So I wanted to kind of catch you up on a little bit of that uh, and tell you where things stand. So uh, I'm going to read a little bit from this article uh, from the Washington Post. And again, <laughs> we've got a lot of news this week and all the articles I'm reading today are basically, you know, my expurgated versions of these things. And there's still a lot to cover. So anyway, let's get let's get into this article from the Washington Post. It says. 13 companies have banded together to try to break Apple's control over its App Store, a move that formalizes the growing opposition the tech giant is facing from developers on its platform who increasingly have been standing up to its power. Fortnite parent Epic Games, online dating group Match Group, Spotify, and others, all of whom have butted heads with Apple in the past, on Thursday formed the Coalition for App Fairness. They laid out a set of 10 principles they hope Apple will abide by or be forced into compliance on by regulators and lawmakers. The suggested principles aim to make fundamental changes to how the iPhone's iOS software works, including breaking Apple's strict control of how mobile apps are installed on most iPhones through the Apple App Store. If Apple were to change course and follow the principles, an unlikely scenario without a court order or new laws, it would fundamentally alter the multi-billion dollar industry built around iOS applications and potentially give Apple less control over how customers use their $1,000 computers in their pockets. Apple has defended its control of the App Store, pointing to privacy, security, and quality as the main reasons it must vet which apps are allowed on the platform and limit their capabilities. It says the vast majority of the apps on its platform pay no fees because they do not sell digital goods, but the fees it does charge help support the platform. It was unclear exactly how the coalition would force Apple to change its guidelines based on the principles it suggested Thursday, though the website urges, quote, enforcers, regulators, and legislators around the world, unquote, to address the issues it raises. Some of the coalition members are in discussions with lawmakers who are considering legislation that would limit the power of big technology companies, according to officials briefed on the matter who requested anonymity to discuss sensitive topics publicly. The coalition, according to its list of 10 principles, wants Apple to allow developers to be able to take full advantage of the hardware on Apple devices. Currently, Apple reserves some privileges for its own built-in software, and the coalition wants Apple users to be given the choice of their default software. For instance, users could use Google Assistant instead of Apple's Siri. The coalition did not take aim at Google, which also operates an app store on Android phones and charges a 30% fee on sales. Sarah Maxwell, a spokesman for the coalition, said the group, quote, believes in a level playing field across all gatekeeper platforms and is engaged in a dialogue with a number of them. We will happily work with any platform willing to support the principles pro proposed by the coalition, unquote. Unlike Apple, Google allows customers to download apps outside of its Play Store, although some consumers find the process difficult. And that's the end of the, that's as far as the article I'm going to go. But beyond being difficult, it's actually dangerous. I, personally, I would say security and privacy are really big issues here because if done correctly, Apple and Google are both trying to make sure that the apps that are in their app store preserve their, um, their customers' privacy as much as possible. Google, of course, is not as good as Apple since it's, we'll, we'll hear about that later. Um, and security, they, you know, they do some automated security scans and do their best to keep out malicious applications. And if, if they find one after the fact, be, uh, they have the capability to remove that app from the app store. Uh, if there are third party app stores, Apple would have no control over those things. Uh, that said, certainly after talking to uh, Cory Doctorow, I, I really think that the upshot of this is Apple's still going to have to let people sideload apps, which is like they can do currently on Android. There's a security setting you have to disable. You basically said, yes, I know what I'm doing, uh, and I want to 
roll the dice basically, because I want to get this app for a cheaper price from somewhere else, or I want to get an app that you won't allow in the Play Store. So I I want you to let me do it. And and while Google's Android currently does do that, uh, Apple's iOS does not. Um, and my guess is that's probably going to be the solution to this. But Apple certainly will go down fighting for that. Um, you know, it's not purely altruistic. Obviously, Apple's making a ton of money off of this, and they do and have used their gatekeeper capabilities to honestly screw over some other developers um, by not giving them access to the same stuff that Apple does. Part of that's for privacy and security, but it does give Apple an unfair advantage. So the other thing Apple may be forced to do in some of these cases is give every developer the access to the exact same thing that Apple has access to. So I understand where they're coming from. I do like Apple. If I, if they ever have this capability, I will still personally stick to only stuff that's gone through the app store. But I think it's important for people to have that choice. A couple of quick updates. Uh, this has been going back and forth uh, in the courts, but it looks like a bench trial has been set for May 2021 as opposed to a jury trial. Um, that was kind of floated for a little bit, but the, part, uh, the parties have agreed to just do a bench trial, which means the judge is the one who makes the final call. The judge has also ruled that Apple can continue to block Fortnite, which is the, the epic, the, the massively popular epic game that started this whole thing. Uh, but they did say that Apple was not allowed to block anything based on uh, Epic's Unreal Engine. Uh, and that is a gaming developer platform that many, many, many other game developers outside of Epic use to create games. And, and basically the judge said it's not fair to penalize those people for something that Epic did. So um, I think it was a, the right line to draw. Now there's the 10 principles are really interesting. And there's uh, an article that I'm linking to at the end of the, sh in the show notes that if you're at all interested in this, uh, you should check out because it goes through and looks at all 10 principles and kind of analyzes them. Um, so it, it is interesting. So if you want to check that out again, look at the show notes, there'll be a link there to that article. All right, next up, uh, a pretty disturbing story about some Android spyware uh, that's posing as Telegram and Threema apps. And if you recall, these are supposedly secure messaging apps. Threema is actually really good. Telegram has been not as good. But both of them basically purport to be end-to-end -end encrypted messaging apps so that you know nobody, not even you know, Google or anybody in between, uh, can read your messages. Uh, only, the, on, only your intended recipient. So... Uh, there are interesting ways around that. Basically, if you it's end-to-end -end encryption, right? So it's encrypted in transit between the two devices, but at some point it has to be unencrypted on the device or you can't read it. So there is, you know, there's an area of attack there where if you can compromise one of the two endpoint devices and you might be able to read then the messages in unencrypted form. So anyway, let me read a little bit about this article. Uh, and this is from the Hacker News. A hacking group known for its attacks in the Middle East, at least since 2017, has recently been found impersonating legitimate messaging apps such as Telegram and Threema to infect Android devices with a new previously undocumented malware. And here's a quote from cybersecurity firm ESET. It says, quote, compared to the versions documented in 2017, this new Android Spy C3.A has extended spying functionality, including reading notifications from messaging apps, call recording, and screen recording, and new stealth features such as dismissing notifications from built-in Android security apps, unquote. And there's some technical terms here. Don't worry about it. It's just, um, you, don't need to, you don't need to know these, but I didn't want to try to scrub them uh, from the article. First detailed in Kihu360, I think it's a conference, in 2017 under the moniker Two-Tailed Scorpion, 
The mobile malware has been deemed surveillanceware for its abilities to spy on the devices of targeted individuals, exfiltrating call logs, contacts, location, messages, photos, and other sensitive documents in the process. In 2018, Symantec discovered a newer variant of the campaign that employed a malicious media player as, as a lure to grab information from the device and trick victims into installing additional malware. Then earlier this year, Checkpoint Research detailed fresh signs of APTC23 activity where Hamas operators posed as young teenage girls on Facebook, Instagram, and Telegram to lure Israeli soldiers into installing malware-infected apps on their phones. The latest version of the spyware detailed by ESET expands on these features, including the ability to collect information from social media and messaging apps via screen recording and screenshots, and even capture incoming and outgoing calls in WhatsApp and read the text of notifications for social media apps, including WhatsApp, Viber, Facebook, Skype, and Messenger. The infection begins when a victim uh, visits a fake Android app store called Digital Apps and downloads apps such as Telegram, Threema, and WeMessage, suggesting the group's motivation behind impersonating messaging apps is to, quote, justify the various permissions requested by the malware, unquote. Let me stop right there. So (laughs) if you're paying attention, this is the security problem. This is exactly what I talked about in the previous thing about Apple and Google is this was through a third-party web store, not Google's Play Store. So because Android allows people to do this, these apps were not vetted by Google, and they were downloaded from a different app store. And it turns out that they were not vetted at all, uh, or they were compromised and contained malware. So this is a real-life example of why that can be dangerous. All right, let me finish this article. In addition to requesting invasive permissions to read notifications, turn off Google Play Protect, and record a user's screen under the guise of security and privacy features, the malware communicates with its command and control server to register the newly infected victim and transmit the device information. The command and control servers, which typically masquerade as websites under maintenance, are also responsible for relaying the commands to the compromised phone, which can be used to record audio, restart Wi-Fi, uninstall any app installed on the device, among others. What's more, it also comes equipped with a new feature that allows it to stealthily make a call while creating a black screen overlay to mask the call activity. Apps downloaded from fraudulent third-party app stores has been a conduit for Android Uh, Android malware in recent years. It's always essential to stick to official sources to limit risk and scrutinize permissions requested by apps before installing them on the device. Right, so that basically sums up what I was just saying before. (sighs) Yes, it gives you freedom to go outside these stores, but for the average person, I would recommend that you never do that. And something else it said there in just that last sentence is something that I've also talked about, and beware what permissions are asked for. Uh, When you first install an application or maybe first run an application, it will pop up and say, I need access to whatever, location, camera, microphone, contacts, photos, all these sorts of things. Make sure that it makes sense. Uh, And if it doesn't, then don't allow it to have access to those things. Just because it asks for it doesn't mean it needs it. But the really tricky part about this is is these apps are, they're impersonating these um, messaging apps that for a messaging app to work right, it needs access to your camera, your microphone, your keyboard, and some of these other things. So that's one of the reasons that the malware is posing as these apps, because these apps require a lot of permissions to work and wouldn't seem out of the ordinary for you to grant those kind of permissions to these apps. Unfortunately, you're granting it to a malicious version of that app, which is doing a lot of other things with those permissions. All right, next up, and I love the, the, this article. It's called, it's titled Google Chrome, the Anti-Privacy Browser. 
Uh, this is from a website called theprivacy.com, which I'm not sure if I'd seen before, but I ran across this article and uh, it's good. I'm, again, this is an expurgated version. It's really, really long, actually. It's got some really good stuff in it and just it goes through and picks apart all the various privacy features uh, or lack thereof in the Chrome browser. Um, but I'm just going to cover a few of the ones here that maybe you don't know about. And if you're interested, I would definitely go to theprivacy.com uh, and look for this Chrome, the anti-privacy browser story. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. All right, let's read the article. Your browser has a big impact on your overall online privacy. Websites are constantly trying to collect information from you, and they're tracking you well after you leave their site. Websites also let other companies in advertising, marketing, analytics, and social media space embed elements that track site visitors across the Internet. In some cases, hackers and scammers might leave malicious code on websites to steal your information or consume your device's computing resources for their own gain. And that last one is a reference to uh, cryptojacking, where... They use your browser to mine for Bitcoin or something else. The browser you use, including any installed extensions, can defend against these privacy intrusions, but not all browsers block trackers equally well by default. And even if there are some helpful settings, most people don't change defaults. Uh, that's what Steve Gibson likes to call the tyranny of the default. Basically meaning that, yeah, they give you the capability of this, but if it's not on by default, most people don't know about it and will probably never go looking for it and will probably never change it, meaning it's useless. Back to the article. You also have to be aware that sometimes browsers themselves collect data from its users for their own use and potentially to share with other companies. The most important privacy factor for Chrome is that its full name is Google Chrome. I love that line. Google is incentivized to collect data to feed the advertising revenue that funds the company. It does this in two major ways. One, it collects data to help advertisers better target their audiences. Google helps companies advertise on Google search results and on most websites. If you see an ad on a website, there's a good chance it was served by Google. The data it collects is used by advertisers to ensure people with the right income, in the right location, and with the right preferences are seeing that ad. Those are just a few examples of the targeting that's available. The more data that is collected, the more targeted they can be. All right, two, it helps advertisers analyze their ads' performance. This isn't a Google-specific behavior. Most ads leave some form of tracking code on a site to gather information about the ad itself. Companies want to know whether users saw the ad, clicked on it, or made a purchase after seeing or clicking on an ad. There are ways to measure this without compromising users' privacy, but some ads collect even more personal data contributing to the overall loss of privacy people encounter online today. This is why Google collects so much data on its users. It does so via various products and services at the core of their business model. Our focus here is the role Chrome plays in their overall data collection and how much and how much of it you can prevent. Chrome collects and uses data differently depending on whether you're signed in with your Google account and if you have the sync feature turned on. When you're signed in and syncing, it's easier to share data and features across your devices and under a single account. But it also gives Chrome, and as you'll see, Google free reign to access more of your data. While Chrome has its own specific privacy policy, Google provides services beyond Chrome and integrates services and products within Google accounts and products, so it's not always easy to know what data falls under which kind of privacy policy and whether specific settings or features changes any certain data collection. However, according to Google Chrome's white paper, quote, all data synchronized through Google servers is subject to Google's privacy policy, unquote meaning that when you're synced or signed in, your data is likely used, or at least can be, for advertising purposes. However, this isn't the case when you don't sync or sign in. In that case, your data collected falls under a Chrome-specific policy and often stays on your device and your browser. 
Generally speaking, when considering privacy, you're better off not signing into your browser, though you may be giving up some convenient features. If you use Chrome on multiple devices, want access to bookmarks, saved passwords, and sync your Google services, for example, you'll automatically be signed into Gmail, YouTube, and other services, you may find the privacy trade-off worthwhile. You can stop Chrome data being used this way, but Google notes that it will still be used to personalize your experience after it's anonymized and aggregated with data from other users. According to Google's Chrome Privacy Notice, Google collects your browsing history, personal info, passwords, website permissions you've allowed, cookies, cached data, and a record of what's been downloaded from websites. This is all stored in your system locally, not Google's servers, unless you're signed in and have sync on. If that's the case, the data is stored on Google servers as part of your Google account. However, whether or not you're signed in, that data doesn't stay on your system long. By default, Google will send any website you visit your IP address, cookie data, and quote-unquote standard log information, which includes device-specific details. Anyway, it goes on and on and on. Uh, the key thing I wanted you to know there is the whole sync and sign-in thing. It's very convenient, and Google will probably prompt you to do so when you're using Chrome to sign into your Google account. But just realize that as soon as you've done that, you're basically changing your Chrome privacy policy for Google's privacy policy, which is much looser. Anyway, I'll skip, I skipped a lot of details here, but here's the, here's the final verdict. Chrome wasn't built for privacy. It doesn't inherently offer any dedicated privacy protections, although it does have many security features which do protect privacy as a byproduct. And this lack of privacy functionality is clearly out of step with other modern browsers, including Apple Safari and Microsoft Edge, that have dramatically stepped up their privacy protections. In addition to not having a solid basic privacy protections, the browser adds to your personal data sharing by pumping data into Google for, for use alongside their already swelling profile of your behaviors. So Chrome doesn't actively protect your privacy, but it does actively undermine it. Given this, we would recommend anyone using Chrome switch to another browser, preferably Firefox or Brave, if you can. So that basically echoes what I've been telling you all along. Google Chrome is, it's a, it's a good browser. Honestly, it's got a lot of great functionality. It's actually a pretty secure browser, but it's just horrible when it comes to privacy. Uh, Firefox is just as good in my estimation, uh, and it protects your privacy by default. Uh, I would switch to Firefox. If you're only an Apple person and all you ever do is Apple, then Safari is probably okay as well. But I still, I, I'm a Mac guy and I still use Firefox everywhere. All right, so keep that last article in mind when, you, when I read this next one. Uh, and this is from CNET. And it's, uh, it says, Google is giving data to police based on search keywords, court docs show. And let me read from this article. It says, there are few things as revealing as a person's search history, and police typically need a warrant out of a no on a known suspect to demand that sensitive information. But a recently unsealed court document found that investigators can request such data in reverse order by asking Google to disclose everyone who searched a keyword rather than for information on a known suspect. In August, police arrested Michael Williams, an associate of singer and accused sex offender R. Kelly, for allegedly setting fire to a witness's car in Florida. Investigators linked Williams to the arson as well as witness tampering after sending a search warrant to Google that requested information on, quote, users who had searched the address of the residence close in time to the arson, unquote. The July court finding was unsealed on Tuesday. Detroit News reporter Robert Snell tweeted about the filing after it was unsealed. Court documents showed that the Google provided the IP addresses of people who searched for the arson victim's address, which investigators tied to a phone number belonging to Williams. Police then used the phone number records to pinpoint the location of Williams' device near the arson, according to court documents. 
The original warrant sent to Google is still sealed, but the report provides another example of a growing trend of data requests to, search engine, to the search engine giant in which investigators demand data on a large group of users rather than a specific request on a single suspect. And this is a quote from uh, Albert Fox Kahn, the executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. He says, quote, This keyword warrant evades the Fourth Amendment checks on police surveillance. When a court authorizes a data dump of every person who searched for a specific term or address, it's likely unconstitutional, unquote. The keyword warrants are similar to geofence warrants in which police make requests to Google for data on all devices logged in at a specific area and time. Google received 15 times more geofence warrants requested in 2018 compared to 2017 and five times more in 2019 than 2018. The rise in reverse requests from police have troubled Google staffers, according to internal emails. Google said Thursday that it works to protect the privacy of its users while supporting law enforcement. And this is a quote from uh, Richard uh, Salgado, who is Google's director of law enforcement and information security. He says, quote, we require a warrant and push to narrow the scope of these particular demands when overly broad, including by objecting in court where appropriate. These data demands represent less than 1% of total warrants and a small fraction of the overall legal demands for user data that we currently receive, unquote. The company declined to disclose how many keyword warrants it's received in the last three years. Reverse search warrants like geofence warrants are being challenged across the U.S. for violating civil rights. Lawmakers in New York have proposed legislation to make these searches illegal, while in Illinois, a federal judge found that the practice violated the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and this is a quote from a guy named Spodek. I, I cut out the part of the article where it gave his full name, so I apologize for that. But he says, quote, Think of the ramifications in the future if everyone who searched something in the privacy of their own home was subject to interviews by federal agents. Someone could be interested in how people die a certain way or how drug deals are done, and it could be misconstrued or used improperly, unquote. Typically, probable cause is needed for search warrants, which are associated with a suspect or address. The demands for information are narrowly tailored to a specific individual. Keyword warrants go against that concept by giving up data on a large group of people associated with searching for certain phrases. And here's a quote, inevitably, from the EFF, uh, Jennifer Lynch, uh, who says, quote, If Google stored data in a way that was truly de-identified, then they also couldn't give it to the government. Google's not setting up their system or changing their practices in a way that could prevent these kinds of searches, unquote. Because of how keyword warrants work, there's a concern that innocent people's online activities will be swept up in the requests. People have been arrested for being in the wrong place at the wrong time because of geofence warrants, and attorneys are now worried it could happen for searching on Google. All right, so we've talked about these kind of issues before, uh, but it's really, you know, it is kind of scary. I mean, we've got, we've got these laws and the Constitution for a reason. Um, we've got warrants for a reason, there's, and there's a reason why they need to have you know, be very specific about where and whom they want to, uh, to search and what to search for. This is really an end run around that. And I, I'm hoping that this will be resolved in the right way by the Supreme court or by some new laws. While it's obvious that they can be useful, obviously the, I'm sure like in this one case they mentioned here, they did manage to find the guy who caused an arson, you know, we still have to go about things the right way. There's a reason we've got rule of law and there's a reason we've got the constitution. So Somehow we managed to find arsonists before this, and we'll still do it after. All right, now a couple articles here about Amazon's ALEXA products. Um, first, first a good one. So this is from CNET as well. It says, Amazon appears to be making good on its effort to keep tightening privacy for its, I'm just going to say Alex instead, and hopefully that won't do it. So when I say that, I really mean ALEXA, but I'm just going to say Alex. So I hopefully don't 
start your devices listening to me. All right, Amazon appears to be making good on its effort to keep tightening privacy for its Alex-powered devices, even though the hot button issue has cooled down this year. The most notable change is a new option to automatically delete your voice recordings immediately after they are processed by Alex. A written transcript of these recordings will still be available for 30 days, but can be deleted anytime you want. This feature, which is available starting Thursday, which by the time you hear this should already be out, builds on Amazon's other auto-delete functions, which let a customer delete Alex voice recordings on a rolling three-month or 18-month basis. Both these options were announced at Amazon's launch event last year. Making these kinds of changes will be critical to building back trust in voice assistants after a rocky 2019 that included a controversy over human reviewers listening to customers' recordings. Added to that, Amazon is working to bring Alex into more places like the car and the office, so ensuring that customers trust Amazon devices will be necessary to keep expanding Alex outside the home. In addition to the new auto-delete feature, Amazon later this year will let you delete all of your saved voice recordings by saying, Alex, delete everything I've said. You could previously do this only by using the Alex app or going to Amazon.com. Last year, Amazon added a similar command, Alex, delete everything I said today. And Karthik Mitta, who's Amazon's director of Alexa Privacy, I said it, (laughs) Alex Privacy, admitted that some new privacy features will restrict Alex capabilities. For example, some personalization won't be available if you turn on the new automatic deletion option. But he said Amazon will continue to find the balance between the need for privacy controls and new features. Okay, so, you know, they're trying. People are still weirded out by this, but they're, you know, it's good that they're giving them some some options for, you know, taking back some of the privacy and making sure this stuff doesn't hang around longer than it's that is necessary. All right, now here's the weird one. Amazon just released a whole bunch of new products or updates to old products, but the new one that you probably saw in the news because it got a lot of attention is a new security drone for, for your house. This is something that you willingly put in your house. Supposedly for your own security, but it's kind of creepy. So let me read this article from the Washington Post by Jeffrey Fowler. And I'll get back to Jeffrey Fowler in a minute. Um, But let me read from this article. It says, Amazon appears undeterred by its emerging reputation in consumer technology. Creep. At a virtual launch event on Thursday, Amazon's new product lineup again pushed the boundaries of where and how we bring surveillance into our lives. Its new gadgets include a ring security camera attached to an indoor flying drone a new Echo Show speaker that swivels to follow you around, and a security camera for cars that can record encounters with police. Amazon also announced a few overdue improvements to the privacy protections its uh, connected products offer consumers, which I applaud, which is probably in reference to the article I just read you. But the direction the company wants to take connected life is unmistakable. More recordings feeding into Amazon artificial intelligence to automate our homes and our lives. Earlier this month, Amazon also unveiled a new wearable health device and service called Halo that can take three-dimensional scans of your body and listen to your conversations to let you know how you might sound to others. I just threw that in there because it was weird. <laughs> I didn't even heard of that one. But back to the other devices. As the new Amazon devices most likely to raise eyebrows use cameras, not just microphones. That starts with the $250 Always Home Cam, part of its Ring brand of connected doorbells and security systems. This camera is an autonomous drone that flies inside your house so you can check in from afar. And this is a quote from the Ring founder, uh, Jamie Siminoff, uh, who said, quote, We wanted to create one camera that could give users the flexibility of every viewpoint they want around the home, unquote. Before you ask, no, the drone doesn't contain lasers for entertaining the cats. They're likely to be terrified anyway. 
Amazon says the Always Home Cam does have obstacle avoidance technology so that it won't run into anything unexpected. So let me stop right there and describe this thing to you. Uh, if you haven't seen it already, it's this kind of little squarish base that sits wherever you want to home this thing. Uh, and the top comes out. So it's like picture like almost like the lid of a jar, uh, except it's kind of squarish instead of um, round. Uh, that lid contains within it in the four corners rotors, propellers, you know, the things that you see on drones, right? And then when you activate this thing, the whole that whole top lifts up and it, and brings up with it this little stalk uh, that's connected to the lid kind of going down. So it's, you know, it, think of like a bottle of nail polish where you take off the lid and it comes out with a stick on it where you, you know, you paint the, the stuff with it or glue, you know, rubber cement. It looks kind of like that, except the thing, the, the thing sticking out the bottom is the camera. So the idea here is that remotely, let's say you're traveling and you want to check in on the house, you launch this thing remotely and drive it around your house looking to see if everything looks okay. All right, now you get the idea. Let me finish off the article. Simonoff said the idea was you could use your phone to remotely see if you left a window open or the stove on, which is convenient. But the scary part is we know those aren't the only ways it could be used. Amazon said the drone always hums at a quote-unquote certain volume, so people are aware of it running and can't be manually controlled. It only flies along a preset path. But as we've learned from Ring's other products, what's to stop it from spying on family members or neighbors, becoming a tool for police, or being used to watch you? Once again, Ring's products raise more social questions than the company seems to want to address. Also from the Ring brand, a new $200 dashboard car security camera promises to alert users to attempted break-ins, as well as alert authorities if there's an accident. One particular capability caught my attention, this is Jeff Fowler, given Ring's cozy relationship with the, with the police. Say, Alex, I'm getting pulled over, and the Ring car cam will record your interaction, save it to the cloud, and alert your family. Connected cars and cameras also open up a whole new world of questions for car crashes, as I learned earlier this year when many when the many cameras in my car, a Tesla Model 3, recorded a hit and run while it was parked. Amazon's car cam will bring similar capabilities to a lot more cars. What are the implications for insurance and courts? Can your car be its own witness? Can it testify against you? And that actually is almost a good segue to another art. Another article I'm going to have later on when I talk about those uh, auto insurance monitors. We'll get to that later. But anyway, you know, in some ways, of course, this is cool. And the real ambivalence I have about all these things is I love tech. I'm a tech guy. I love gadgets. And if I knew that all these things were strictly being used for my benefit and had a high enough security that I knew they couldn't be hacked, I'd love these things. And I do have some of these things in my house. I've got, you know, I've got Echoes in my house though I'm about to replace them all with um, uh, HomePods. But, you know, I, I know how these things work and I know how to use them and I trust them to a certain degree. But this really does take it to a whole new level. I mean, now you've got the perfect spy built into your house, you know, and it, if you ever somehow lost control of that, or if even if, you know, it running the regular patrols that you tell it to do while you're away, you know, what if the police or Amazon or a hacker could also get access to those same videos? Uh, interesting times we live in. Speaking of which, next article about a coffee maker infected with ransomware. Uh, this is from SlashGear.com. The IoT, or Internet of Things, explosion brought about a new generation of devices and appliances 
that could do only what we previously saw in science fiction. Almost all of their abilities, however, relied on connecting to the internet, or at least to your home network. Security experts have warned about the risks of such connected devices, but while owners themselves may take some precaution, all of that gets thrown out the window if the manufacturer itself doesn't even meet the basic security requirements. There have been instances in the past where Smarter's iKettles have been reported with security vulnerabilities. To be clear, the latest version of its iKettle and coffee maker smart appliances have reportedly plugged up the security holes. But considering how many people rarely change appliances until they're broken, however, they may not be aware of the security dangers they have put themselves in with outdated models. The core problem with Smarter's first-gen connected coffee maker is that it doesn't employ even the most basic security practices for software, especially those that go through a network. Communication with the smartphone app isn't encrypted, and firmware updates coming through the same app is neither encrypted nor checked for integrity. It's no surprise, then, that a vast security researcher, Martin Hron, was able to quote-unquote update Smarter's coffee machine with a ransomware disguised as firmware and make all hell break loose. The ransomware pretty much made the machine go haywire and perform functions without any way of stopping it except to unplug the machine. Of course, it was simply a proof of concept, so no ransom could be paid to fix the issue. You are, therefore, stuck with the malfunctioning coffee maker. This report shouldn't be used as an anecdote to shun the progress that IoT has made. It should, however, serve as a cautionary tale for manufacturers to step up their security game now that the Internet is part of the product's equation and for consumers to be more conscious of the smart products they buy and bring into their homes. So, yes, we've talked about uh, how poor the security is uh, on IoT devices. As we like to say, the S in IoT is for security. And again, I'm a tech guy. I love this stuff. It's really cool that some of these things are connected to the internet and we can control them from afar and do all sorts of really cool things with them. But just realize that especially for the cheaper devices or non-name brand devices in particular, security could be horrible. So one of the things I tell people to do is uh, to put these devices on your guest network. So at the very least, they're kind of kept segregated from all the other stuff in your house, like your computers and um, your iPhones and things like that. That, you know, so... Because if the bad guys figure out a way to compromise one of these devices, it becomes a beachhead. They are now inside your network, and now they can try to probe all the other things in your network and try to affect those things. But if you put them on a guest network, it's kind of like putting them in a whole separate network. Uh, because if they're on the guest network, they can only talk to other devices on the guest network and to the Internet. Uh, and won't be able to probe or try to um, infect any of your more valuable devices that are on your regular Wi-Fi network. All right, next up. Should you let your insurance company track your driving? Uh, this is from Lifehacker, and the article says, Auto insurance companies are increasingly offering usage-based insurance rates that rely on cellular or GPS devices to monitor how you drive. These rates can offer significant discounts from what your traditional auto insurance might offer, but there are also trade-offs. Here's what you need to know to decide if usage-based insurance is right for you. Usage-based insurance, or UBI, uses devices known as telematics, which are typically a mobile app or gadget plugged into your car's dashboard. These devices collect and transmit data about your driving behavior, including your vehicle's location, speed, distance, harsh braking, seatbelt usage, fuel consumption, battery voltage, and engine data. Some UBI programs use telematics for a few months, while others are continual. Telematic data differs from traditional auto insurance, which bases its rates on factors like your age, gender, marital status, vehicle type, garage location, liabilities, and deductions, as well as your driving record and credit-based insurance score. UBI insurance uses this data too, but telematic data allows for additional discounts based on how well you drive. There are generally two types of UBI plans, pay-as-you-drive or pay-how-you-drive. 
Pay as you drive tracks usage of your car and rewards people who drive less. While pay how you drive rewards how you drive by monitoring for risky behavior, such as speeding or slamming on the brakes. Savings can vary from 5% to 40% depending on the type of driver. Privacy is definitely a trade-off. With UBI, you are revealing your habits, places you like to go, where you live, and who you associate with. Some programs even require your telematics device to be turned on at all times. While UBI carriers claim they don't share the driver information with third parties, insurance companies will have to turn over data to assist criminal prosecutions if compelled by law. Data breaches are another possible security concern as well. If you're a very safe driver that doesn't worry too much about privacy, UBI will save you money. If you're not the best driver, though, or you worry about handing over your data and potential pitfalls that come with it, skip the telematics and stick with traditional insurance. So it's probably no surprise that I would say don't use it under any circumstances. Uh, but then I'm a privacy nut, so I just think it's just wrong. So anyway, again, if, you know, I, the problem is that we're such a data mining country, I can't imagine that this data is not going to be somehow monetized in some other way. Even if it's not today, uh, shareholders will press for that stuff to be done tomorrow because everybody's doing it. You may as well double dip and get as bring as much profit out of these things as you can. So I, I just don't trust it. Not until we come up with some serious privacy laws. All right, last up, there was a rather scary story about uh, Apple that I want to talk about and explain why it might not be quite as bad as it sounds. All right, this is about Apple's T2 chip. And this is, I forget what the T stands for, but it's a special computer chip that Apple created for security purposes that they've started putting into laptops uh, and, and to help make them more secure. And ironically, this was what made them insecure. Uh, so let me read uh, part of this article from Apple Insider. Apple macOS devices with Intel processors and a T2 chip are vulnerable to an unfixable exploit that could give attacker, attackers root access, a cybersecurity researcher claims. The T2 chip present in most modern macOS devices, and by, that's MacBook Pros, iMacs, uh, MacBook Air, those kind of uh, computers, is an Apple Silicon coprocessor that handles boot and security operations along with disparate features such as audio processing. Niles H., an independent security consultant, indicates that the T2 chip has a serious flaw that can't be patched. According to Niles H., since the T2 chip is based on Apple's A10 processor, it's vulnerable to the same checkmate exploit that affects iOS-based devices. That could allow attackers to circumvent activation lock and carry out other malicious attacks. Let me stop real quick. So Apple makes a lot of their own chips now um, for their devices. And like the brain for iPhones and iPads is this A series of chips. And A10 was one that they made several years ago. And that particular processor had a flaw in it that was dubbed Checkmate that allowed those older phones to be hacked. And, uh, and as we'll find out in a minute here, because of the way these chips are made, there's no way to fix them. So these devices are forever and permanently flawed. Uh, and this T2 chip is basically based on that A10 chip design, so it's not a surprise that it has the same security problem. The thing with the T2 chip is it's in modern devices, uh, modern Apple computers. So um, even if you're up to date, this is still a problem, but it's not quite that bad. Let me finish the story. Once an attacker gains access to the T2 chip, they will have full root access and kernel execution privileges. That basically means it's God access. They can do almost anything. Back to the article. Although they can't decrypt files protected by File Vault 2 encryption, they can inject a keylogger and steal passwords since the T2 chip manages keyboard access. 
Apple also can't patch the vulnerability without a hardware revision since the T2's underlying operating system uses a read-only memory for security reasons. On the other hand, that also means the vulnerability isn't persistent. It will require a hardware component such as a malicious or specially crafted USB-C cable. According to Niles H, the vulnerability affects all Mac products with a T2 chip and an Intel processor. Since Apple Silicon-based devices use a different boot system, it isn't clear whether they are also impacted. And by the way, that hasn't happened yet, but by the end of this year, Apple is switching away from Intel as their main computer brain chip, and they're going to make their own. And all these chips that Apple makes are under the umbrella of what's called Apple Silicon. Um, so the new Macs that are coming out may not have this vulnerability. Uh, we don't know yet. Okay, just let me finish here. It says, because of the nature of the vulnerability and related exploits, physical access is required for attacks to be carried out. As a result, average users can avoid the exploits by maintaining physical security and not plugging in USB-C devices with unverified provenance. All right, so the, the fancy, the simple way of saying that is that for someone to hack your device, they've got to have access to it. They have to steal it or they have to get to it when you're not around. You know, this could be the quote-unquote evil maid attack where your device is in your home and you're not watching it when your maid is there and your maid is doing something malicious by hooking up this device or whatever. Uh, it would require this special device, this USB-C probably device or cable, to be left plugged in because if you just restart your Mac, the security returns. Basically, this thing does a really clever technique of when booting up, it kind of intercepts the booting process, uh, and part of that booting process, the security features use this T2 chip, and so it kind of shims itself in there and is able to not do anything. Like it says, it can't really read your files if they're encrypted, uh, but it can log all your keystrokes, which might capture things like credit cards or social security numbers or passwords. Um, and of course, if, if it captures your login password somehow, then it could get access to all your encrypted files. But again, this requires someone to be physically present and plug in a malicious device into your computer somehow. That's not likely to happen for most people. And crucially, it cannot be done remotely. Um, so somebody would actually have to physically be in contact with your computer and leave whatever this malicious device is uh, attached or otherwise, next time you restart your computer... Uh, the malware is removed. So again, this got a lot of big press because when exploited properly, it's it's really bad. And because of the way it's a, it's a hardware problem, it's not something that can be fixed with software, these devices will forever be vulnerable to this attack. But it's not easy to do, and it is easy to fix. Basically, just reboot the device. All right, so tip of the week, real quick. Um, this week, as I said, is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. It's all month, and because because I've got an interview coming up next week and the week after that, a lot of this month is going to be not me doing news shows. So I want to definitely talk about it this news show, and I'll I'll throw in some other stuff uh, even around the interviews in the next coming weeks. But this has been this is the 17th year. It's been going on. It's been going on quite a while, uh, and they try to have different themes for different weeks. Like week one is if you connect it, protect it. Week two is securing devices at home and work. Week three is securing internet-connected devices in healthcare, which seems very specific, but still important. Uh, and week four is the future of connected devices. So so they've got some really kind of pithy, short tips, and I'm just going to read through some of the ones they've got for this week. And I've talked about these things before, and I may elaborate on them a little bit, but um, uh, let me just read this little flyer they've got uh, for, for week one. It says... 
Cars, appliances, fitness trackers, and other wearables, lighting, healthcare, home security, and more all contain sensing devices that can talk to another machine and trigger other actions. Examples include devices that direct your car to an open spot in a parking lot, mechanisms that control energy use in your home, and tools that track eating, sleeping, and exercise habits. New internet-controlled devices provide a level of convenience in our lives, but they require that we share more information than ever. The security of this information and the security of these devices is not always guaranteed. That's an understatement. Once your device connects to the internet, you and your device could potentially be vulnerable to all sorts of risks. With more connected things entering our homes and our workplaces each day, it's important that everyone knows how to secure their digital lives. And they rattle off four quick tips here, which I've said many times before, but let's, let's go through them. First, shake up your password protocol. Change your device's factory security settings from the default password. This is one of the most important steps to take to protect your IoT devices. According to NIST guidance, National, National Intelligence and Security Technology, I forget what NIST stands for, but it's a good organization. It's a government organization. Uh, anyway, according to NIST guidance, you should consider using the longest password or passphrase permissible. Get creative and create a unique password for your IoT devices. And of course, I would just say use LastPass and have it generate a really crazy password. You'll never have to remember it. And yeah, just make it as big, big and crazy and nasty password as you can make it. All right, number two, keep tabs on your apps. Many connected appliances, toys, and devices are supported by mobile application. Your mobile device could be filled with apps running in the background or using default permissions you never realized you approved, gathering your personal information without your knowledge while also putting your identity and privacy at risk. Check your app permissions and learn to just say no to privilege requests that don't make sense. Only download apps from trusted vendors and sources. So those two sentences right there back up a lot of stuff I just told you about today, which is, you know, don't give your app any permissions that don't make any sense for that app. Uh, and you should actually be able to go back and review what permissions you've given and revoke permissions uh, if you think you may have been too permissive before. That's always worth doing. And only... Get your apps from trusted sources, which on iOS currently you have no choice. That's what we were talking about with Fortnite, uh, which may eventually change. And on Google, as I said, you can. You can turn off a security setting and get your apps anywhere you want. But that is usually a security risk. All right, number three, secure your network. Properly secure the wireless network you use to connect internet-enabled devices. Consider placing these devices on a separate and dedicated network. That's the guest network I was telling you about. And number four, if you connect it, protect it. Whether it's your computer, smartphone, game device, or network devices, the best defense is to stay on top of things by updating to the latest security software, web browser, and operating systems. If you have an option to enable automatic updates to defend against these latest risks, turn it on. All right, so as, as you might suspect, there's also uh, lots of other great articles and tips and uh, info on this website. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. You should definitely check that out. Of course, my book covers all of this and way more. Uh, and I will add one more thing in here that I that's in the book as well. And that is not every smart device needs to be connected to the internet. If you're not using those internet based features, then keep the device dumb. Don't hook it up to an internet. The example I like to give here is your television. I've got an external streaming device. Like I've got an Apple TV that I use for things like Netflix and Amazon prime and all these other uh, streaming services, HBO. I know that my TV has a lot of those apps built in as well. Uh, but I don't access them through the TV. I access them through my Apple device. So my TV is dumb. It is not connected to the internet. It can't tattle on me. It can't be hacked because I don't need those features. Now, you may not be in that same boat, but you could be. <laughs> uh, if you don't trust your TV, and I don't know why you would, 
you could get yourself an Apple TV uh, for your streaming box and probably get access to all the same things your, uh, your TV does, but hopefully with a lot more privacy and security. All right, that'll wrap it up. Thanks for hanging in. We had a lot of stuff to cover. And again, I, there was, I had to skip several articles uh, that, I, that I thought about talking about. I just had to narrow it down. There was just too much to cover. So real quick before we go, I mentioned uh, a 20% off coupon. If you go to uh, my book, if you go to apress.com and look for my book, uh, you will can use the code DRAGONS2020. That's capital D-R-A-G-O-N-S 2020. Uh, that will get you 20% off the ebook or the print book. I believe it's unlimited. You can get multiple copies that way. And I also believe it's good through the end of the year. So you got plenty of time to use that. Maybe Maybe you'll get some Christmas gifts that way. But if you missed the contest, I just want to give you another way you could save some money on the book right now. I would very, very much appreciate anybody who does take the time to get the book to please post a nice review on Amazon, especially uh, I've got, you know, 55 reviews out there now, which are all, I think, I don't know, my average is like 4.8 out of 5 stars or something like that. That's great. Uh, there's actually a glitch right now. They haven't moved those reviews to the fourth edition. They're still tied to the third edition, but we're working on that. Uh, but nevertheless, it's still... When there's a new edition, it's really good to have fresh reviews. So uh, if you've read the book, if you like the book, please consider going to Amazon and dropping a really nice review. That would be very, very helpful. All right, real quick, i uh, got another interview next week. I'm talking to a couple folks from EFF about this nasty student proctoring surveillance that's going on, uh, which also is similar technologies being used to watch employees by their employers. It's very important, very interesting. Uh, that'll start next week. It'll be another two-parter. Coming up shortly after that, I should be talking with Cloudflare's John Graham Cumming, uh, our returning champion. He's been on the show, gosh, four or five times already. I think he's the the, uh, the person I've had on most, and he's a great person to talk to. They've got this really cool new technology called Radar, which is an analytics service that hopefully will replace Google because Google's analytics is everywhere. But that means that Google's snarfing up all that data, and this is a privacy-protecting analytics service. So uh, we'll be talking to him about that. I'm trying to get uh, an interview with DuckDuckGo. They've also got a really cool new technology that replaces the old Do Not Track, which was doomed from the start. Uh, but there's a new uh, privacy policy protocol or whatever that they're they're using or, and promoting that will allow you to say you don't want to be tracked. And now, because we've got the California Consumer Privacy Act and the GDPR in Europe, there are actually laws in place now that says that if you say, I don't want to be tracked, then they have to not track you, which is why I do not track the old do not track flag was doomed to be from the start back then because everybody was free to ignore it. That's no longer true. So anyway, I'm trying to get somebody from DuckDuckGo in to talk about that. And I said, Jeffrey Fowler earlier, that is the big person I've been trying to get this interview with. I've been talking with him multiple times. He's just a very busy person, but he does some great reporting for the Washington Post on privacy and really good stuff. So anyway, we're in talks. Hopefully before the end of the year, we will have him on to talk about one of his uh, articles, a series of articles on privacy. They're really great. Check them out if you haven't seen them already. Uh, so hopefully we'll get him on soon. That is it. Be sure to check out the National Cybersecurity Awareness Month website. Again, look, at, uh, you could either search, uh, search online for that, or you could look at the show notes for a link to it. Also got the link to my book on APRESS if you want to use the Dragons 2020 20% off coupon. And links to those articles about the Google Chrome browser and uh, the App Fairness 10 Principles. They're both long articles, but worth a read if you want to check those out. All right, everybody. Hope you're all staying safe out there. Wear those masks. Stay in when you can. Avoid crowds. Yada, yada, yada. So as always, everybody, stay safe out there. 
and don't get caught with your drawbridge time.